Sydney Environment Institute presents the Environmental Justice 2017 Conference Keynote Conversation 10, Environmental Justice in Place, with Chair Petra Checkart and speakers George Woods, Mike Campbell, Heidi Norman and Robert Figueroa. This is our very last plenary session here. We're looking much forward to it, environmental justice and place. My name is Petra Chucker at University of Western Australia. Me too, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land of which we meet here, the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It's upon their land that we hold this fantastic conference. Place matters. Place is not just a thing or a little dot on the map. Place is also a way of seeing, of knowing, and understanding our world. Place gives meaning to our various diverse lives, and attachment to place contributes to our well-being. Now, for this particular session, of course, we think of injustices to place, when ecologies of a place are altered, when place attachment is disrupted, and when dislocation and displacement affect individual and community health and well-being, whether that is through the extraction of resources, denial of land rights, climate change, incremental climate change, or climate change extremes. We have four speakers here, and they present a range of expertise, activism, and academia. So please join me in welcoming our first speaker here, George Woods, an environmental and climate advocate and activist, a campaigner, also a poet, uh, activities ranging from involvement in, grassroot, in the grassroots collective, rising tide to negotiations for, climate, for the Climate Action Network. Uh, George is also the main New South Wales coordinator for Lock the Gate Alliance. So George, welcome to you. Please come to the podium. Thanks, Petra. Um, Thank you all for having me here. I'd like to pay my respects to traditional owners of the Gadigal clan of the Aurora Nation, past and present, and to any uh, Aboriginal people here in the conference today. Uh, my name's George Woods. I am um, New South Wales coordinator for Lock the Gate Alliance. But before I talk about Lock the Gate and what we do and how we work with place and environmental justice, I thought I would start with the story of my place. Uh, I live in, uh, on Awabakal and Waramai country, a place that the Awabakal people called Malubinba, which my people call Newcastle, named after a, another coal city in the United Kingdom, um, on the banks of the river that they call Kokun, which my people call the Hunter River. The water comes down to Newcastle from the west, the north and the south. In the north, it comes from mostly the Barrington Plateau, a very beautiful place. It springs out of montane wetlands up there at a place called Pole Blue um, and bends around towards the west, joined by rivers that come down from the Liverpool Range. Um, lovely, um, boxy, um, grassy woodlands in the west. And in the south, uh, water comes down from sandstone escarpment, national parks, Wollamai, Yango and Goulburn River, and it forms these beautiful sandy rivers, the Goulburn River and Wollumbi Brook, to join the Hunter out the heads where I live in Newcastle. 
the Newcastle, the Hunter Valley 250 million years ago was covered with um, Permian forest, um, conifer forests of a tree called Glossopteris. And many hundreds of millions of years ago, this sea level rise blocked up the opening of the river into the ocean, blocked up the basin, and essentially the whole thing became swampland, and eventually all of those forests became buried, and over the last 200, 300 million years, they have become fossilised, and now they are coal. And in the Hunter Valley now, we mine around 200 million tonnes of that coal every year, uh, from 30-odd, 20 or 30-odd open-cut coal mines that are very, very large and have caused a great deal of disruption of place in the valley. Most of that 200 million tonnes glides past my window because most of it is exported to uh, Asia for burning for electricity. So the place where I live and I grew up is a fulcrum, really, for a turning world. Um, there's a lot of past there, and there has been a lot of dramatic environmental change there and cataclysmic change for the Awabakal people who lived there before my people invaded. The sea level has risen before, and it's rising again now, and we export large volumes of former forests to other countries and are a significant, well, Australia's biggest single contribution to climate change is the coal export industry that's largely concentrated in my hometown and my region. So now I've worked on, uh, I have been trying to prevent the coal industry, not alone. I've been part of efforts to try and prevent the Newcastle coal export industry from getting larger for the last 15 years or so, and they have abysmally failed. It's roughly doubled in the last 10 years. Um, and so that made me reflect a lot about the role of people in trying to protect the environment and create positive um, and just social change. And now I work for Lock the Gate, and Lock the Gate is a really interesting network. It's uh, a grassroots network of several, hundred, several tens of thousands of people and hundreds of community groups around the country that are really united around the common ground of protecting land and water and people particularly from the impacts of unconventional gas and coal mining. And it's an interesting network because it brings together very, very different people from extraordinarily different perspectives and experiences who are united around that goal. And I was thinking about it on my way here today and thinking, really, Lock the Gate is all about people who care a lot about place. And in some ways, Lock the Gate is really unsophisticated and deeply, deeply unfashionable for that reason. We live in a globalised world where there's quite a lot of people in our society, in my community, who have no fidelity to place. When I was growing up in Newcastle, all my peers wanted to do was get out of there and go and see something else and move to Melbourne or, you know, go to Europe or do something. And it's, it's actually really deeply unfashionable and, you know, seen as quite parochial to have a commitment to place. 
And Lock the Gate is a network that is unafraid to be unsophisticated, um, unafraid to express itself soulfully about how people feel about the land where they live. And it brings together people from across the spectrum who in Australian recent history have been at loggerheads with each other and have had deeply antagonistic relationships, even violent relationships. Traditional owners have a strong sense of place. Farmers have a strong sense of place. And conservationists have a strong sense of place. And all of those different types of people come at the idea of place from really different perspectives. It's, it's a network that really transforms all of those people. It has transformed me to be working for it and to come across people who also love this continent and my region, but from a really different perspective. So I think a lot about the future of my place, Newcastle, as well, uh, because the sea level is rising and a lot of the, the city and the infrastructure that now exports coal is likely to be underwater um, in 100 years' time. And so it makes me think about the changes that have already gone past the city where I live and the, the region where I live. In the Hunter, it was one of the you know, early places that were um, colonised by Europeans, um, English people, when they came and invaded Australia. And a large proportion of the river flats were cleared of vegetation very, very early because it's a very productive farming country and it was really good timber. And they discovered coal quite early too, so it has been heavily populated by settlers and colonists um, ever since Australia was first colonised. So it has changed a great deal. And what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years is that the coal mining industry, which has been there for a really long time, has breached the boundaries of what many people in the region feel is reasonable. The mines are much, much bigger than they used to be. They occupy about 16% of the floor of the valley now. They're enormous, they create a great deal of air pollution, they've disrupted the river, they've dug up creeks and sent them in other directions in a lot of instances. And that's led to the people who live there now and who feel greatly connected to it, even though they are relatively recent newcomers to the region, uh, to feel disrupted in their sense of place. So there's an academic called Glenn Albrecht who also comes from Newcastle and he coined this term, solastalgia to describe the feeling that you get when you miss your home even though you're still there because the landscape has changed so fundamentally. I live in a place called Stockton now on the north banks of the Hunter River and in Stockton um, there's a terrible problem with coastal erosion. The beach is basically being eaten away and every time there's a big storm, you know, a few more metres fall into the sea, kind of like Collaroy but without all of the million dollar mansions. And... Uh, this problem is partly caused by engineering, not, not solely climate change, but it is a climate change problem too. And they had a public meeting there last week to talk about what to do about it. And this old man said, you know, I feel so sad that the beach is gone. It's like losing a friend. And I thought, yeah, I think if the sea level comes up and the beach that, that I played at when I was a kid in Newcastle was swallowed up by the ocean, I'd probably feel the same way. So what we try and do in Lock the Gate, I suppose, is to 
speak to people's feelings about their place and, and make it okay to be parochial, make it okay to not be global and sophisticated, but just to say, I love this and I, it's worth fighting for. And there's a balance to be struck because everything changes. Climate change is not the only change that's been brought to the region where I live, and change occurs over centuries and millennia, even without our interference, but we're accelerating it. And so we're trying to come to terms with the change that has already been brought and will continue to be brought, but at the same time, recenter people in feeling connected to the place where they live and connect them with other people who feel the same way with whom they had previously not thought they had anything in common at all. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, George. That was beautiful. Thanks for emphasizing the role of commitment, courage, and love, I think, you mentioned it, that defines attachment to place. And I think it really requires a big and not a parochial heart to do that. So thank you very much. Let's now welcome our next speaker, Mike Campbell. And I just want to say a couple of words here, and that's what you should all know. Mike was awarded the Order of Australia Medal, OAM, for environmental activism. So he has decades of work behind him and still probably, hopefully, in front of him to guide us in what needs to be done, whether it's campaigning, opposing to power stations, to defend place, to protect place, or anything beyond. So please all welcome Mike, who will share his experience with us on the importance of place. Uh, thank you, Petra. They, they hand out 500 of these every year, so don't get too elevated about <laughs> Thanks very much, Petra. Uh, I wish to pay respects to the elders of the Gadigal clan of the Eora uh, Nation, of which we stand today, and for their leaders past and present. Yes, it goes back a long way. Um, I'll just read something here from 1974, and this was from Edward... Sinjin or St John, how it's spelt, QC. Uh, he was the president of the Environment Defence Council back then and he, they were looking at uh, the southern uh, area down there. It's, it's ironic that the inquiry should be described as an inquiry into the preservation of the natural beauty of the Illawarra Escarpment for the report writes the death warrant for one of the most significant and beautiful parts of the escarpment, the so-called Western Valley, which is now to be filled with coal wastes as approved by this report is one of the most superb bushland areas of the escarpment with a rainforest area, beautiful stands of angophora, timber, and other indigenous trees, rich in bird life and animal life. Uh, so it goes on. This is 1974, and um, uh, these battles go on for years and years. You think you've got them won. I was just talking to the gentleman from, from America who said this, this began, he started this all some years ago. And I said, yes, it's all like a trajectory. We thought in 1974 this trajectory would keep going. We were under, under, under Gough Whitlam at that stage. This is terrific idea of, uh, you know, enthusiasm. But history, history destroys that. 
and this is what happens. So it's unfortunate that we don't, we think of tra trajectories never plateauing, but never ever declining. But unfortunately, this is the myth, this is the uh, history that we have to face. I grew up in the 1950s, a very simple time, I'm 72 now, but it was a very stark place, uh, you know, uh, we had always had bushland, we always had little creeks to run in, and these things are denied nowadays for, for the young ones. And this is part of uh, one of my, my mentors or favourite persons, David Suzuki. David Suzuki begins with, with this vision of taking his child down to the stream to fish. And then he thinks backwards to his uh, ancestors in Japan with the Minamata uh, uh, mercury diseases. So David Suzuki had this thing and still has it. We saw, I saw him live in Newcastle and it was just wonderful to have those sort of speakers. Uh, Jack Mundy was my mentor. Jack Mundy started the Green Bands in Australia, uh, not he, but he and, he and his crew, out of a Builders' Labours Federation. There was a time in 1972 when the economics of Australia were quite buoyant. So the building workers had uh, jobs to do on building sites, but if that one shut down, they walked three, three doors down the road to another building site. So in amongst all this, the workers began to talk about social issues on the site. And we were inspired by Petra Kelly from the German government, who was the, this lone green person that was in the media, uh, spousing green futures in the, in the German government. Well, Petra Kelly was marvellous. And, uh, and we had... Uh, and, so, and also in England, the downturn of the um, industries left factories and, and machinery... Uh, bereft of work, but the workers were there, and the workers were, then were saying, workers' control of industry. This was a mantra that was coming out of England, 1972, the workers' control of industry. Why should we give up our work? If we don't fight now, this machinery will be gone. It'll be sold. So we will have this place. So this is all about place. I'm talking about place. I'm talking about the, the environment, the place, the place of work. We spend a lot of our time at work, over our years, and so it also is place. Our memories are work, our memories are where we live, so it's all about place, these movements. Jack Mundy and his friends on the building site said, right, all of our work should be socially useful work. How about that for an idea? And everyone said, I vote for that. All of our work should be socially useful. <laughs> so they began to... Uh, and, and, and some people were saying they're destroying the... Uh, the, the uh, historic buildings in the middle of Sydney. And, and they said, oh, well, we won't. we're not going to knock down those buildings. And then a, a group of liberal ladies, because Jack, like oh, I, was a communist. I was a, in the Communist Party out of the union movement. Jack was our leader at that, that stage. And so Jack and the others approached these liberal ladies, you know, the other side of the political uh, divide in Sydney at Kelly's Bush. And they were saying, we don't want this bush destroyed. The, the, the bulldozers are coming tomorrow to run the bush over and Jack turned up and they said, oh, Jack, but you're in the union and you're a communist, why are you coming to us? I'm here to help save your bush, ladies. <laughs> and that's what happened. That was the very first one. They, they withdrew all labour. Uh, there was no machinery labour, there was no trucks, there were no, any, nobody was allowed on the site because the union said, no, you're not going there. And that's it. Nobody walks onto Kelly's bush. And that hit the headlines and, and this, was, this was a revelation and they saved several uh, buildings in Sydney at the rocks, uh, the old historic rocks, which were going to be knocked over, and they said, yes, well, we're going to keep those as well. And further up, later on, a couple of years later up the coast here, we saved, were able to save a, an island, the last one in, in what they call Brisbane Water, which is the Gosford area, 
and it was the last uh, natural island where fish and all sorts of things were there and it was going to be destroyed by hookers for, for real tale development. And we got the unions around the table and they said, well, right, okay. Hookers, we said to them, you can advertise for blocks of land if you like, but I can tell you, you must put in your ad that there will be no telephone services, there'll be no electricity, there'll be no postal services. And he said, if you don't put those in the ad, then you're liable for misleading the public. So we end up beating them off. So this was a green band thing. As I said to the gentleman, these incandescent times, you know, these trajectories, you thought these things would keep going, but history keeps, unfortunately, pulling us down. And we have to wear, as Mark said, the burden of history upon our back, wherever we go. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cogent thing to think about. Socially useful work. It's about place, about work, about where we live. The power stations, we stopped those up the coast. There's two of those, and we did it on the basis of air quality. That was back in 1982. Uh, you know, and, jo and George, one of my heroes, George. George is one of my heroes, one of the new modern, articulate, fantastic people that, I, that makes me keep going, even though of my age. But George and those others uh, keep me going. Uh, and, and, and George mentioned about the rehabilitation of the Hunter. Well, I mean, the Hunter's a bloody moonscape. They're, they're, allowed, they're leaving it. Neither the government, Rio Tinto, all those companies are walking away and leaving a moonscape. Now, the workers up there, I spoke to the workers up at Walkworth on this, and we talked about rehabilitation. And we said, you guys are victims like we are trying to save the landscape and the natural environment in the village. And we said to the workers, you guys are victims as well because the big end of town are leaving you behind. So come on board with us. They haven't quite come yet as George works away tirelessly day in, day out. But we're always hopeful that the message that we're all at the mercy of the big end of town, capital gone mad. But I was very interested to hear the Green Keynesian address by Kyla. I thought that was excellent. I thought that was excellent. Uh, so we've come to this time where it's about place. Uh, we battle on. I think uh, the harder they go, the harder the Abbots and the Trumps go, then the harder we go. Because, it's, you know, we've somehow married this to our DNA. All of us people in this room have married this somewhere, linked it to our DNA. When they get up and talk, well, we fight hard. And it just goes on and on. It's a wonderful life, I can tell you now. And most of you know <laughs> I wouldn't have done it any other way. But you must, you must preserve your own life at the same time. Plenty of people get burnt out, of course. But you have to, uh, you have to uh, balance that with your own place, your own family, your friends, this, this personal life of yours. You must balance this thing. And it's better that you do that. And don't be frightened of saying, I'm taking time off to go away with my family or friends, because that's hugely important. Otherwise, you burn yourself out and you're no good to anybody. So what are, we, what are we saying to young people? Well, the government, this government and others, uh, they just haven't got the vision. We did have those visions, and they come and they die, and they come and they die, as we had in 1974, and the gentleman said years ago that this began in, in America there. We've heard the Americans speak here from Kentucky and others about the coal industry and just transition, just, just transformation, as that question was asked before. Um, these are real things we must battle on. We must battle on. There's no way it's best we battle on, otherwise we would just, uh, just fire away. How long have I got, Petra? One minute, there you go. Thanks very much. So, um, 
Yes, well, somebody mentioned about the Koreans this morning. I'll just finish off with a, a statistic, a hard, cold statistic. And um, the Korean Times earlier this year, last month, quoted that the... This is the Korean Times, right, South Korean Times, that the parent company, the South Korean government-owned Corea's Resources, which is the the 22-year battle we've been fighting this Korean resources from taking the coal out from under our beautiful valley and leaving the valley bereft of water and ecology and everything else. It's been a 22-year battle I've been involved with. Anyway, the Korean resources, Corea's, uh, they became actively engaged in overseas resource development during the former Lee, Mung, Lee Young back administration, but a price plunge for the global resources, even though, as, as George said, there is this price spike for coal. Don't worry about that. This price spike, don't be frightened, it will plunge and it'll go like this, but there's a price spike. Anyway, they had uh, the, the price plunge at that stage for the global resources had dealt a deathly blow. So Corez, the Korean Energy Resource Company, the debt ratio stood, out, according to the, to the uh, Korean Times, the debt ratio was 6,905%, according to the Korean Board of Audit and Inspection. Now, that means that the value of the Korean resources arm, they were borrowing or their borrowings were 70 times its value. Now, on economic grounds, that's pretty ordinary, isn't it? So these things are, these are the lovely little things that we use as tools to fight them. So we'll talk about place, but it is about place, about time, where you live, where you work, and these are the precious things that we hold in our memory all the time. And we want to go back. We can never go back. But the memories are our places. And we fight for those and for those around us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mike. So it's about living in places. It's about dwelling in places. It's about the memories of places. But it's also about place-making. And I think what you said about making places, anything we do in these places ought to be socially useful. I think that's really important. Our third speaker, Heidi Norman, is an associate professor in social and political sciences here in Sydney, University of Technology, and in the School of Communication. So she has tons of experience in the context of Aboriginal history and politics, particularly around the domains of land, land management, and the cultural aspirations and values, <coughs> excuse me, that are related to land. So welcome, Heidi. Thank you very much. And um, as our other speakers have done so, I acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, who um, the Gadigal people who you know, felt the very um, immediate and sustained impact of um, the dispossession from their land. So let, let me start here. Um, the work I'm, I'm going to speak to for the, you know, just for the next 10 minutes or so is about um, broadly the political economy of the New South Wales Aboriginal land estate. And the, I want to make a few key points over this next few minutes, I'm going to look more broadly at what's happening across the country, um, but I want to bring that back to New South Wales, because New South Wales, um, keeping in mind that New South Wales has borne uh, the most, I would argue, 
scales of violence and sustained uh, occupation and use of land, and that creates a certain context for thinking about land rights and land justice and land recovery. So across New South, across the country rather, um, there has been a land titling revolution. This is the language of economic anthropologist John Altman. I'm going to refer back to his work in a moment, where Aboriginal people across the country have succeeded in recovering have succeeded in recovering vast tracts of land. So let me just pull up some slides here to show you the full extent of the kind of land recovery, this land titling revolution that's happened over the last, um, the last two decades. And that land recovery is, a, is a, as a result of um, the Native Title Act that came into place in 1993 and in New South Wales, the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Rights Act and other laws, other state-based or territory laws across those other jurisdictions. So you can see here, um, this map shows the kind of land recovery in places like the Northern Territory, um, something like 82% of the coastline is now repossessed by Aboriginal people. More than 50% of the territory has been recovered um, to traditional owners. In areas of New South Wales, you can see somewhere between 42 and 50% of the state is the subject of native title claim. The Barkindji claim that's in the dark, darker purple uh, was approved um, just this year after 18 years in the federal court. Uh, again, there's about eight or I think there's nine since I've been, I've been away and back in Australia. There's been a further native title determination granted. Most of those determinations are along the east coast with the exception of Barkindji. And you can see the lighter blue are claims um, pending. So whereas the Yagel case and Barkindji spent 18 and 20 years in the federal court, there is enormous pressure on the New South Wales government to expedite native title claims in a much more timely fashion. So these, that, native, that land titling revolution that Altman describes across the traditional north, um, that is set to be... Um, we're set to see quite significant recognition of native title in places like New South Wales. Another area for consideration, and this is the idea that John Altman's making, is that land across the north and northwest is of significant environmental importance. So he shows that the land across uh, that's been recovered to Aboriginal ownership is of high conservation and uh, diversity value and increasingly makes up a very significant proportion of the National Reserve System, a point that I will return to. And the, the argument John Altman is making is that where across northern Australia there's an emphasis on, on post-native title now, so it's about how you manage your land holdings, the argument Altman makes is that conservation activities are viable alternate economic development activities on land. So you can see here, many of these lands are dedicated um, as Indigenous protected areas or um, conservation zones. So if I move through, um, through to this other slide, you can see the growing proportion of Aboriginal land 
again drawing from the traditional north that is dedicated as part of the national reserve system. The, the work that I've been looking at, um, and you can see here in the National Reserve System, it's some 26 million hectares of, uh, of Aboriginal land that has gone into that reserve system. And it's the reserve system that allows Australia to meet the Paris uh, target, the various targets that are set as part of the Paris Agreement on um, carbon emissions and also allows overlands, not necessarily in the National Reserve System, but over protected areas, where, and land recovered by uh, traditional owners, uh, land is utilised in the context of carbon offset, um, where practices are being returned, such as fire stick farming and land clearing, utilising those, those uh, practices that uh, ranges are currently undertaking across certainly areas in the Northern Territory and as far down as New South Wales as well. So we can see that Aboriginal approaches to land management uh, is a significant uh, factor in the National Reserve System. It's a, a viable source of labour in the form of the ranges and approaches to land management. So they're working on country or caring for country movement has created pathways to jobs on country, a revenue stream and forms of economic development or alternate economic development, as John Altman explains it. In New South Wales, I don't know if this is my correct slide, but in New South Wales, um, there are something like 10 to 11 Indigenous protected areas. But rather than those maps that I showed you earlier where you, you can see the connect landscapes or connected protected areas. In New South Wales we're looking, they're much smaller. Those protected areas are likely to provide habitat protection rather than corridors of, um, of uh, conservation or where biodiversity can thrive. So in places like New South Wales, those IPAs are largely about regenerating landscapes and providing habitats or um, safe safe areas for um, threatened species. Uh, in terms of my, my work, what I've, um, I guess what I really want to emphasise today is that there is an economy, a significant economy around um, this alternate model of development. The federal budget, uh, CSIRO for example, has estimated the value of Australia's eco ecosystem, its air, water, forest, flora and fauna at more than um, uh, $1,300 billion per year and other metrics indicate the incredible value of conservation. And my, uh, the key point I want to make is that um, Aboriginal people are increasingly placed, given um, this land titling revolution and as I have um, argued in other work, not so successfully today, that the New South Wales Aboriginal land estate is set to dramatically increase. So that under native title, we've seen a, a, a dreadful recalcitrance on the part of the New South Wales government in expediting those native title claims and a host of other factors that have constrained native title. And under the Land Rights Act, there's something like 40,000 land claims uh, lodged over the 30-odd um, year history of land rights and only about 2,500 of those land claims have been approved. A new mechanism in the Land Rights Act that started this year 
will see um, the Aboriginal land estate in New South Wales transition from a current value base of $1 billion to $5 to $6 billion in as many years. So the Aboriginal estate in New South Wales is set to rapidly expand and that will place um, Aboriginal landowners in, um, in both powerful and conflicted spaces in terms of negotiating conservation, negotiating cultural priorities, uh, negotiating economic interests and the kind of economic imperatives that also underpin the Land Rights Act. So the, the uh, land justice in New South Wales is in a very interesting space at the moment and I encourage uh, much more uh, work and thinking about um, the Aboriginal estate and the significance of the Aboriginal estate in a few different ways. One is how that will allow for a much more um, powerful engagement in um, the economy, in uh, climate politics, um, in thinking about um, approaches to managing lands. So if we think about the, the land that is recovered under the Land Rights Act and, and the, how interests are recognised in terms of native title, mostly those lands, particularly in the northwestern and far western New South Wales, have suffered incredible environmental degradation as a result of the intensive um, industry practices, so farming and um, uh, pastoralism and agricultural. So the land that is being recovered um, to Aboriginal community control is quite often in need of significant rehabilitation and there are also landscapes where coal interests and uh, other uh, mining interests prevail. So m m my point here in the work that I've been doing over the last decade is to think about how land, land, Aboriginal land rights intersects with both um, conservation and uh, climate justice and the very real need to uh, create through, through your land estate um, an economic base um, for you to sustain your own, uh, your own communities. Thank you. Thanks, Heidi, for reminding us of the very, very important legal dimension of country. Our last speaker, Robert Figueroa, several of you have already interacted with him, uh, works at the intersection of history, philosophy and religion, has had a long interest and expertise in environmental justice, focusing particularly on recognition, and as I learned yesterday as well, was the first to formally introduce a philosophy course in environmental justice. So welcome, Rob. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, and thanks to elders, ancestors, and the place of the Gadigal. And, and thank you also to the Kalapuya, whose land now I reside in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley. Uh, thanks also to the place that I grew up in, in New Jersey, in the swamplands, Pine Barrens, to the Lenape. And thanks to those who were in Puerto Rico, of a land that was named different, and I'm not sure who I came from, whether it was Taino or Carib, probably uh, also Portuguese, since that's my namesake. Um, 
And I want to thank some other folks about place, namely uh, my mother, who kept me in the same house, not, you know, without me letting being out, but in the same house in, in the Pine Barrens uh, and in the shore of New Jersey for 45 years. Uh, that was home. It was always home. It would never be questioned until Sandy took it away. So she doesn't live there any longer. Um, she took my home in New York State when I moved to Texas. And I got out of Texas as fast as I could. Um, in Puerto Rico, I want to thank my family who also stayed for all that time and always gave me family. Um, I always had a place there, again, until Maria came on the birth date of my mother and my daughter. This is that time-space continuum of place that Mike spoke of so eloquently. And I also really want to say something about the many places that environmental justice has allowed me to travel. We mentioned Minimata, Australia, Uluru, um, the Imola community, Sydney, um, Wollongong, uh, and all the places you've all brought me since I've been here for the last three days. Um, kind of insomniac for the last three days. I want to thank everyone for sharing your places with me, both, um, both those places of deep oppression and those places of great um, transformation. Um, so I just want to say a few uh, quick things, if I may. Um, first, uh, I do want to say something about place and recognition justice. And recognition has been getting some really good critique uh, during this conference, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I also am one to critique it. Um, the critique mainly says that um, we keep going with in recognition justice. We run into this uh, place of the state controlling recognition. It's really not the way that I see it because I'm into transformative justice first, foremost, and to the end. So transformative recognition justice, if you will, looks more at place of community and the way that people uh, exchange their identities within that community, the way in which they're empowered and the way they are emplaced. Um, that the state happens to be the dominant place for political identity to me seems besides the point, uh, the body and my community is, is a place of political identity. Um, those beings and, and uh, different persons throughout the world who are with us in the co-evolution of this little place in the universe, that, that used to mean non-human, but now I have to come up with something else. Um, all these are political, they're political bodies. And they're not just political because of the state, they're political because of power. And the recognition of power is what I understand people really talking about. Uh, so I, I want to put something you know, out there which is transformative recognition and, and opportunities of reconciliation. Um, I wanna talk about place in that way as a fluid thing, uh, again in a time-space continuum uh, not as a stable thing that we lock down, not like the permanence of the state 
but more in the impermanent state in which we find ourselves and embodied in that way. So in that light, I want to say something to the recognition of the first place that I want to consider, and that is the place of the womb, and not just the human womb, but the womb of where everything starts, whether it be seeds or whether it be mountains or whether it be clouds or um, a damn raccoon that keeps waking me up. Um, The womb is the first place, and and to go back to the womb is not to, um, you know, I'm not trying to go in that direction, but I am trying to go in a direction of a trajectory where we consider the future of the body and the future of personhood and recognize these places um, in each of us um, as a way of defining personhood. Uh, In my work, I've been able to think about things like moral terrains as a, a moral space and a flow But I've also been able to think about what some people, friends, David Pellow, talked about in the spaces of containment in terms of the prison and those kinds of places of oppression and where they exist and Kyle White's writing in terms of the spaces of containment that are the history that colonial um, bodies have unleashed and restricted upon indigenous bodies. When I was thinking about climate refugees for quite a while, I was thinking about that very issue of the loss of place that George spoke about and how one can transform and become part of another place with other bodies without being considered the toxic body or you know, the body that doesn't belong and how the environmental justice mission is in the future is going to be figuring out how we can let others into our lives who aren't there now and how they can bring their places and transform our places and how we may allow them to participate directly as if they are equal, not because um, they um, just are equal citizens under some equal constitution, but because they have a place with us in the same way in which I see in the faces of everyone who I've been interacting with for the last three days, uh, the place of a friend. When I realized that the climate refugees was just one issue within refugees, I started to volunteer and work with resettlement communities in the United States, particularly in Iowa, and my work there made me realize that um, we are talking in all the wrong ways. We are saying people are displaced and resettled, and there's a, you know, they have something of a place, and then they're resettled. Um, You know, settled down is what I tell my children when they don't behave. Uh, Settling is what my stomach does after it's upset. Uh, we have to replace people, put them in an environment where they are placed, and there's nothing in refugee discourse, not just climate, but political refugee discourse that allows the resettlement and the replacement of people. People hide in their houses. 
When I do my study and I look at the environmental identity of refugees who are fleeing and the way in which they have nothing to hold on to, they don't even have their shoes, and then I interview them and I talk to them and I see what they're doing in their resettlement, I have found that their dis description of where they are is more like their identity in flight than it is their identity within the camps. We need to bring in this place for them as well, and we need to bring in the environment and their memory to make them whole again uh, and transform. Let me just close with uh, an idea that Petra unleashed upon me uh, on the first day. This is our circularity of going back after looking forward all uh, first three days. When she talked about the body mapping of toxic bodies and bodies that have been in, you know, in, impacted, uh, particularly of minds, and it made me think of body place. Body place, not in a Cartesian sense where I am someone in a body, but my body is a place for you and your body is a place for me and my mother's body was a place from which I came from, from which my heritage comes from in the future. And the body in space is like an ecosystem. There's something in between the ocean ecosystem and the land ecosystem, the beach. That beach where we can occupy comfortably and be lapped by the waves and then go and be dry. That beach is where we find our body space in between other bodies, in between other trajectories. And lastly, let's call out the toxic bodies, not those who have been poisoned and assaulted by the power and the others. The toxic body of corporates, the toxic body of a leader of a world now who is eliminating every single thing we've done and worked for and hopefully will go away very quickly. The toxic body are these leaders, not the victims of their oppression. Those bodies are our bodies and the toxic bodies are the ones we need to transform and eliminate and replace. Thank you.